I would invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. If you're using a Bible that's provided for you in the front rack of your chair, uh, we're going to be on page 958 towards the back of your Bible. We are taking a closer look at the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, if you weren't here last week, I'd invite you to go to our website or our church YouTube channel. You type in Covington Baptist Church, Covington PA, it should show up, um, to listen or watch that sermon. We, looked at, we began by looking at several ways that, that we can come to the Lord's Supper with wrong perspectives. And we were, I, I mentioned we're looking through this passage of chapter 11, verses Um, 17 to 34, looking at four key truths that are needed from the text that give us a closer look, a closer examination as to what the Lord's Supper is, why it's important. Four key truths. And last week, we looked at key truth number one from verses 17 to 22, that the Lord's Supper is an expression of our unity. Now, we're not talking here about a simple unity in and of itself, a a unity that you might find with with um, like-minded co-workers at your job, people that have the same interests, the same hobbies, or or, uh, the the kind of unity that you might find on uh, on the golf course, and you're going out with your buddies if you're into golfing. Uh, Or whatever club you may join, Uh, we're not talking about that kind of unity. We're talking about a unity that is brought about by the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has reconciled us foundationally to God, and then he's also reconciled us to each other. That our unity is found in Jesus When we look at unity like that, it's no wonder that the Lord's Supper is a picture of the unity that Jesus has brought. But as as we've seen in 1 Corinthians, there is a lot of disunity that's going on. In fact, in verses 17 to 19 last week, just by quick way of review, we saw that disunity in in a church will reveal itself. I mean, that's true in anything, right? Disunity at work is is eventually going to rear its ugly head uh, and and be brought to the forefront. Disunity in your home, disunity in your marriage, disunity amongst friends. uh, Eventually, if not handled, reveals itself. In disunity in the Corinthian church was uh, one of the manifestations it was revealing itself was the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, Paul says, I can't commend you in what's going on. Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the good, it's for the worse. There's divisions. And God is even using those divisions to separate those who are genuine followers of Jesus with those who are not. Disunity will reveal itself And when disunity is in the church and the church is partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, we see a second aspect of of 
the Lord's Supper being an expression of unity. Verses 20 to 22, we talked about last week, that disunity makes a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. Paul says, I don't know what it is you're doing. You call it the Lord's Supper, but when, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. This is a supper that is magnifying self. Verse 21, it talks about how everyone is fending for themselves. Those who are in a higher, held in higher esteem are, are, are stuffing themselves and getting drunk. While those who are of less significance are going hungry. In the first century, there was a more than likely a fellowship meal that was, what was connected with the Lord's Supper. And that's where all of this was taking place. You see, the Lord's Supper is to be an expression of unity. Unity of Christ's body. We're going to look more at that today. But this past week, as I was thinking about the sermon for today, I couldn't help but think about the theme, the topic of regular doctor checkups. How many of you are pretty consistent with regular doctor checkups? I would say maybe 30% by the gauge of hands. Now, why I was thinking about regular doctor checkups this week is maybe because I don't like going to the doctor and mine is this week. Um, so that's probably one reason it's on my mind. But, but when you think about doctor checkups, why do we have regular doctor checkups? Well, it, it, it's to maintain our physical health, right? To maintain physical health and then to address any issues that may have arisen. That's why many insurance companies offer uh, free yearly checkups because it's to their advantage that you at least yearly are touching base with your doctor so that uh, the insurance company isn't paying more out to address issues that you've neglected. Well, I couldn't help but think that well, doctor checkups, in, uh, that illustration in no way is comprehensive of all that the Lord's Supper means. I think that we can, one way we can view the Lord's Supper is a spiritual checkup. When I say a spiritual checkup, I don't mean that the Lord's Supper is all centered on us. Um, again, if you go back to last week, you can hear how those five ways that, that we often come to the Lord's Supper with the wrong perspective. So I'm not talking about some morbidly introspective approach to the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk more about that next week when Paul talks about judging yourselves lest you be judged. But what I'm talking about is the Lord's Supper... In God's grace, He has ordained that His people, ordained that the church are able to regularly come before the Lord's Supper and to meditatively and prayerfully ask, have I lost sight of the cross in my life? Have I been relying on my own self-righteousness and works of the law for self-approval and even for God's approval? 
Has my love for Christ and my love for others grown old? Have I became negligent of the cross being the focal point of my life that that Jesus is my sufficiency? He's the rock to which I cling even amidst all of the circumstances and things that are going on in my life. Think one of the ways the Lord's Supper helps us is it serves as a spiritual checkup. You see, the Lord's Supper is to bring us back to what is both unconditionally true, what Christ has done for us, and what is utmost foundational in our Christian lives in the church. What is unconditionally true and what is utmost foundational in our lives and in this church, and that is Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ. The guiding theme and principle of our series in 1 Corinthians is that we must cling to what truly matters. And how can we go to a more foundational thing to cling to than Christ's atonement for our sins? What Jesus has done for us to make us alive in Him and to give us that daily sustaining grace that keeps us to the end. I just, by way of introduction, I want, uh, want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. And just hear the heart of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and what he's talking here is about entering, just like Israel, uh, the high priest entered the holy place once a year, we now are able to approach God's throne freely. We're able to enter with confidence by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Wow, I can't, while this passage is not specifically speaking of the Lord's Supper, I cannot think of a better passage that encompasses both the vertical communion and the, and the horizontal communion with one another than this passage. We have confidence. We approach God with confidence through the work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. And as we have that vertical confidence, 
that overflows to a horizontal love that we are spurring each other on in encouragement in the faith to hold to that steadfast gospel. That's church life. That is, that is the life of the church. The life of the church is not activity-oriented. Are we doing this? Are we doing that? The life of the church is not extracurricular things. The life of the church is living and reminding each other of the hope of the gospel. That's the church. So today we are going to look at the second truth that 1 Corinthians 11 presents to us concerning the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper is an expression of unity. Number two, this morning, we're looking at a very familiar passage. We read it um, often during our observance of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to see this morning that the Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel. We're going to do this this morning in three ways from these four verses. Um, We're going to look at the context of the Lord's Supper in verse 23. We're going to look at the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, or the bread and the juice. And then we're going to close this morning by looking in verse 26, the anticipation that is involved in the Lord's Supper. So before we begin this morning, let's just... Let's go to the Lord and ask for his mercy and enlightenment as we look at his word. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we know what love is because of your expression of love through Jesus. Lord, herein is love, 1 John tells us, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfaction for our sins. So Lord, if we are believers today, we may not feel like it. We may struggle. But Lord, if we are believers today, we can say with confidence that we are loved to the utmost. That we are accepted in the beloved. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this text that we would indeed see the glory, the greatness of the gospel. Lord, thank you for giving us the Lord's Supper to continually remind us, not just verbally, But Lord, you've given us a tangible picture of the gospel and what we're able to see and partake of. Lord, thank you. And I pray that if there is one here today that has never turned to Jesus, that has found that unconditional love to which they are longing, Lord, that today would be the day that they give their life to you that they find their all in all in Christ Jesus. Lord, it's in his name that I pray. Amen. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel. In verse 23, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So just in that one little verse, Paul is, is bringing to the forefront in our minds the context in which the Lord's Supper was given, was instituted by Jesus Christ himself. Paul says here that he is giving instruction from Christ, but uh, uh, for I receive from the Lord what I also delivered from you. This is instruction that the Lord gave. <clears throat> we note that in the Gospels, in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28, in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 24, in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 to 20, uh, the Gospels record Jesus instituting the Last Supper, saying, this is what you are to do. In the, uh, uh, I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you. This receiving that Paul, uh, that Paul has received from the Lord, uh, it has the idea of something that is handed down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, we see the same idea. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul gave them instructions regarding head coverings and, and we looked at that extensively. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Paul talks about the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also receive. So I handed down to you the message of the gospel. The end of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So this has been delivered. First to Paul, and then Paul delivers it to the church. That they were to observe the Lord's table. And the context in which that, that institution of the Lord's Supper took place, the end of verse 23 says that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. There you have the context. The context of the Lord's Supper is the very sacrifice of Christ. The detail, I find it interesting that Paul gives the detail here. that the, It doesn't say that the Lord Jesus, before he was crucified, took bread. It doesn't say the Lord Jesus, before his exaltation, before his resurrection, took bread. No, it says that the Lord Jesus, when he was betrayed. You want to know the context of the Lord's Supper? It was the sacrifice of Christ. And what did that sacrifice involve? It involved the fact that Jesus was betrayed or handed over. You see, when, when Jesus could have claimed His own rights, knowing that He would be betrayed by one that was closest to Him, he willingly sacrificed. 
Boy, isn't that different from what we just read in verses 17 to 22, that all these Christians were trying to seek their own rights and actually gain prestige and standing by whether they were in the in club that was getting the food and the wine and being gluttonous? John 13 gives us the most detail about this betrayal of Judas. It's on the overhead. John writes, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Notice this, he rose from supper. What did he do when he rose from supper? Did he go to punch Judas in the face? It would have been tempting to me. Did Did he try to claim any rights of his own? No, it says he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That is the heart of Jesus. When we approach the Lord's Supper, this is the heart of Jesus that we are reminded of. Full sacrificial love, even to the detriment of himself. Man, it almost seems blasphemous, doesn't it? If we exalt ourselves in the Lord's Supper and think more of ourselves than Christ. Boy, we can do that in all sorts of ways. Uh, a year or two ago, uh, we, we gave out the, 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 the book uh, Gentle and Lowly by, by Dane Ortland. And uh, if you read that book, he quoted a lot from the uh, Puritan writers. Now, the Puritan writers are, are not real easy to read because it's, it's kind of old English language. Um, and he, uh, he quoted a lot from, from one specific individual, um, uh, John, John Goodwin. And uh, every single time he quoted from John Goodwin, man, it was so, no pun intended, good. Uh, so I purchased, uh, I ordered the book, The Heart of Christ. And uh, again, you have to work at it because the English is not real easy, but man, is it entirely worth it. He mentions this passage. And John Goodwin says concerning this passage that we have here an example of the love and the heart of Christ for his children. Many times we can think, yes, isn't that wonderful that Jesus did that for his disciples? And it's almost like a past tense thing. That Jesus, in the midst of knowing everything that was going to happen to him, and in the midst of, of Judas going out to betray him, He shows this love to the disciples. But what John Goodwin points out is that in this passage of John 13, not only does John bring out that that Jesus did this in the midst of Judas going to betray him, but John also says that Jesus did this knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands 
and that he had come from God and was going back to God. In other words, John Goodwin's point here is that knowing not only the present distress, but Jesus knowing the future glory that he would have for eternity, lovingly reached out to his undeserving disciples and washed their feet while they're arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest. And John, Bun- and John Goodwin's point here is that the same example we see in John 13 of Christ serving those that God had given to him is the same heart of God today before the throne of God in heaven. God's heart, or Jesus' heart, is still fully for his people. You see, we look back at the Lord's Supper at what Jesus did, but we also, as we'll see, we look forward to the Lord at the we look forward in the Lord's Supper that Christ has purchased for us all the realities of what it means to be in Jesus. And that is an everyday, now to eternity thing. You see, the context of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was handed over. And not only that, but the context of the Lord's Supper Uh, is his humiliation and his exaltation that was cloaked in servanthood. Remember Philippians 2, 5 to 8? Verse 7 says that Jesus took the very form of a servant. Verse 8 says that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, as we take the elements of the the bread and the juice, we are reminding ourselves of the servanthood of Christ. And what He did to accomplish His saving grace in our hearts and that we are clinging to Him to finish that saving grace until the day He returns. In that then example that Jesus has given us to follow him, that we too are to serve others. You see, what we also see in this passage is that the Corinthians were distorting and overlooking this very essence of what the Lord's Supper represented. Jesus was not at the forefront, it was self. So one thing that will help us as we approach the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper, as we, I mentioned last week, it is to be something, man, we're, we are prayerful, we are thoughtful about that well before we partake. I mean, really, church should be uh, uh, preparing to gather together as the church. It should be like that every week. That, man, we are reflective. We are saying, God, would you use this time that we gather together to refresh me in the hope of the gospel. Well, we see this, the context of the Lord's Supper in verse 23, but I also want us to look at the elements of the Lord's Supper. The context of the Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel 
Because we see the very sacrifice of God on display. But the elements of the Lord's Supper are also a picture of the gospel. The first element in the Lord's Supper is the bread. In fact, the end of verse 23, when he was betrayed, what did he do? He took bread. Then verse 24 says, and when, uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. So I want us to first look at the bread. Jesus broke the bread. And man, again, we see a picture of the heart of Jesus. When he had given thanks, he broke it. Jesus didn't break the bread begrudgingly, knowing that it represented his body. It was with thankfulness that he broke the bread. It was with willingness that he broke the bread. Long before this night when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says in John chapter 10, speaking of his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In John 15, after the observance of the Lord's Supper, he tells his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus broke the bread. And what does the breaking of that bread represent? The bread represents Jesus' body. Verse 24, when he had given the thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. What a gift. This is for you. Now, there's various views regarding the bread representing Jesus' body. Of course, you have the Roman Catholic view that the, the bread literally becomes Jesus' body. Literally and physically. The juice literally becomes, or the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus. And we know that not to be true. As you know, Martin Luther, he broke from the Catholic Church. And of course, that was the teaching he was brought up with. And he realized that, that, that it did not make sense. Martin Luther said that the physical body of Jesus is not present in, in the elements and that the bread literally becomes the flesh of Jesus. But he said the physical presence of Jesus is in, with, and under the bread. Now to say that seems to be a bit of a stretch because how can... What's, there isn't really Scripture that talks about the physical presence, the physical body being in the bread. As uh, other individuals held, which is more what we would hold to, that the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It is a remembrance. But I also think that we need to recognize that there is a spiritual presence of Christ. 
as we partake of the bread and the juice. It's not a physical turning of, of, of the, the bread, the juice, to Jesus' body and blood. It, it, it's, not, it's not that those things transform. It's not even that there's a physical, somehow a physical, mystical presence there of that physical body or blood, but there is a spiritual presence of Christ communing with us as we partake of the bread and the juice. The Lord's Supper, it is a means of grace in the Christian life. Not grace in the sense that it somehow imputes to us or, or uh, instills in us some type of an added righteousness. We've been given complete righteousness in Christ at the moment of salvation. But as we partake of the elements, the body, the blood, uh, the, the bread, the juice of Jesus, and, and we are doing that in faith and we are looking to Christ, God does give us grace to sustain us in our Christian life. What a beloved truth when Jesus says, this is my body which is for you. You see, the significance of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus instills the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover celebration. In fact, when, Jesus, or when God tells Moses, I am going to send a final plague and I'm going to release you from Egypt, before that final plague ever happens, in Exodus 12, 14, God says to Moses, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. In other words, they were to remember this momentous day in the history of their nation where God brings out a people for himself out of, out of Egypt. In Exodus 14.3, talking about the, the week of unleavened bread which was connected to the Passover, Moses says to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out. You see, just as, and then through the rest of the Old Testament, the mark of God's redeeming work with, with His Old Testament people, Israel, the mark that they were to always look back to was their exodus from Egypt. How could they forget what God did for them? In the significance of the Passover amongst the people of God, it is in that context that Jesus then institutes the Lord's Supper. And he talks about the bread, and at the end of verse 24, he says, Do this in remembrance of me. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus is the momentous marker in our lives. It is the momentous marker in redemption history that is to set the tone for everything else in life that we do, think, or say. 
Yet how quick we are to overlook this. You see, we partake in the bread to symbolize our union to Christ. This I do for you. And then we partake of the bread to symbolize our union to one another. We looked quickly at this passage uh, last week. If you flip over to chapter 10 and look at verse 16. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So here we see that taking of the juice is so much more than just, well, we remember and we drink it. No, it is a participation. It marks our union with Jesus. That the blood that he shed has been applied to our hearts. And then it goes further at the end of verse 16. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We are active participants as we are taking the bread. That I am symbolizing and I am showcasing the reality of my union with Jesus. He is my Savior and Lord. Just as the bread, the juice, I take it in, it becomes a part of me, so I have been united to Christ. I am no longer viewed as just Adam Pereira, or you fill in your name. Is that how you view yourself? That you are just your own self, making your own way through life, getting your own name for yourself? Or are you seeing that your life is connected to Christ? In fact, you are hidden in Christ. But then he goes even deeper than that in verse 17. And talking about the bread, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. There's church unity. You have the reconciliation to God through our union with Christ. And as we are partaking of the one bread, I know in our context, it's little crackers. Um, Hopefully no more of the little wafers. Uh, That's my hobby horse, if you haven't noticed. Um, But we are partaking of of that one bread, that bread is, picture, is, is a picture of the very body of Christ, and we are expressing our horizontal unity because of our union to Christ, being united to each other. We are active participants in the Lord's Supper. That's one of the reasons. Now, uh, the main reason that got us thinking about even last week, the way we did Lord's Supper, um, was, you know, protocols as COVID is still out there. But one of the the other reasons that we did the Lord's Supper we did uh, last week was was to showcase, to remind us that we are active participants in the Lord's Supper and, and we were actively coming up to receive the bread and the juice. 
That it's not just something that is given to us. It is we are actively participating, declaring that I am united to Jesus because of his broken body and shed blood. See, the bread is a picture of his body and we remember Christ's death. This do, as we say every communion time, this do in remembrance of me. This is not simply, as I mentioned, a mental recognition of the past. What it is, it is a recognition of a new reality that is evidenced in how one lives, how one thinks, and what one values. Like what Tom Schreiner says regarding remembering in the Lord's Supper. He says, remembrance is not merely a mental recall, but it involves the total person and reaches back to the Old Testament where Israel was to remember the Passover. What did that remembering look like with Israel? It was to be in their minds, on their tongues, on their hands, everything that they did. And so that is the way we are to remember But I want to look quickly at the second element of the Lord's Supper, and that is the cup or the wine. In verse 25, Paul writes, in the same way. So again, even that is telling. Everything that the bread represents, in the same way also he took the cup with thankfulness, willingly, gladly taking the cup. He took it after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. If we just take that first, that first phrase there, that uh, in the same way also he took the cup, I want us just to take a few minutes to realize Jesus took the cup. Now, From the surface, we think in our minds, and I think rightly so, we picture Jesus again, standing there, he takes the cup, and he speaks. But there is also a theological truth that is evidenced in this passage um, that that um, that is emphasized throughout the scripture of Jesus taking the cup more than just the physical act of taking this cup. Because the phrase took the cup, it is both literal and it is theological. You see, in the Old Testament, the cup was often symbolic of God's wrath. For instance, in Isaiah 51 and verse 17, talking about the children of Israel who were disobedient, Isaiah says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk down to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Boy, imagine drinking that. Now, I hate drinking NyQuil. And, and, and uh, a cough syrup, all of that stuff. I just, I, I can't stand it. And, and, and neither can my kids. 
and you know, you know, you get it down as fast as you can, but with kids, it's a little harder. You got to be like, come on, drink all of it. Ah, there's still some more in there, especially when it's syrupy. You know, you can say, I drank it all. No, you you know, really enjoy that thing. You're trying to encourage them to drink it down to the dregs. How would you like to drink this cup down to the dregs? Growing up with six brothers, uh, sometimes uh, finances would be tight. I remember being so thirsty in Florida. We'd be out and about all day, and my parents would get this big old big gulp or whatever from 7-Eleven, and they'd be like, you guys are going to all share this. And we're like, oh. And we would always try to avoid the last half inch of that thing because we said that's the dregs of everybody else's backwash. (laughs) But man, this is an even more intimidating scene. The cup of God's wrath. This isn't on the overhead, but again in Jeremiah 25 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, says this to Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So in the midst of Jesus, knowing what was coming, he loves his people. In fact, John, uh, the book of John says he loved them to the end. Meaning the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He washes their feet. feet. He, he, he promises that he is in heaven and he is, he is serving and ministering and interceding for us in an even greater way than he did on earth with his disciples. He has this type of a focus and a love for his, for his people that God gave him, God the Father. That he takes that cup And he knows full well from the prophets, from the scriptures, what that cup theologically represents. He will be drinking down to the dregs the wrath of God so that his people do not have to do so. That is the cup. And we see the significance of this cup, not only that theologically this cup represents the very wrath of God that is fully manifested upon Christ for the sins of his people. But he says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So by Jesus drinking down the dregs of God's wrath and doing it lovingly and willingly and obediently and his mind is still on the people that he is dying for. Despite all of that, by by drinking down the dregs of God's wrath, this cup also symbolizes something brand new. The new covenant. You see, in in the Old Covenant, the giving of the law, 
that too, that covenant began with bloodshed. We don't have time to get deep into this, but in Exodus chapter 24, when, when Moses read the law to the people and the people said, all that you have read, all that you have said, we will do. There was a ceremony and it ended, Exodus 24, 8 says, and Moses took the blood, so there was sacrifices, he takes the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The passage also says he sprinkles blood on the altar, signifying a a, a bonded relationship between God and the people. The old covenant was instituted. It began. It was sealed with the blood of an animal. How much greater the new covenant being sealed, being instituted, beginning with the once for all sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to somehow come up with our own sense of righteousness and well-being to feel secure and safe. We simply cling to the blood that has not externally been sprinkled on us like the giving of the old covenant, but has been internally applied to our hearts. That's the gospel. That's the cup. We get to enjoy the blessings of the cup, remembering the new covenant. When Jesus took that cup, he knew full well, I am drinking down to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. And again, we see here in the term covenant, going back to truth number one, that the Lord's Supper It represents the unity of the body of Christ. The very word covenant, it implies a people who have been bonded together. You see, the Lord's Supper, as I said last week, it is not just a private time between God and I. Yes, there is communion, as we've talked about, with our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we eat the bread and the juice and all that it means. But this is a public meal of a covenant-bounded people that are doing this together. Well, the last aspect I want us to close as we look at verse 26. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel in the context in which the Lord's Supper happened. It's a picture of the gospel by looking at the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice and what they represent. But then thirdly, our anticipation in the Lord's Supper is to both a picture and a proclamation of the gospel. Verse 26 says, for as often, this is Paul now that's that's summarizing everything here in this section, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is not simply remembering a past event. It is an anticipation also in the present and the future. 
You see, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation that is grounded in the past. Jesus' death, His sacrifice. But it is also a proclamation of Christ's work in the present. Remember, uh, chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, we are active participants in the Lord's Supper. We are proclaiming our present day unity that we have with Christ. We we have been united to Christ and we are proclaiming, we are remembering, we are relishing and celebrating that. God's work of grace is, is active in our lives in the present and then also it is anticipatory of the future. You proclaim the Lord's death until when? He comes. We are fixating our eyes that the work has been accomplished. As as Rachel said, introducing that song, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. This is an, an active ruling seated position. And we are reminding ourselves as we partake of the bread and the cup, That because of that sacrifice, because of that resurrection, Christ is seated in the heavens and he is coming back and we are living for that day. Is not the very essence of the gospel, it is past forgiveness of sins, we receive Christ's righteousness, it is God's present working in our hearts that is conforming us to Christ, And it is future glorification when that work of redemption is finished. We see this past, present, and future idea in the Lord's Supper. As you remember in Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you want to write down to read later, Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, I believe that Jesus here is referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Christ returns and we celebrate this great banquet with the Lamb as His bride, But the Lord's Supper is also a proclamation to both believer and non-believer alike. We proclaim the Lord's death and everything that that represents until He comes. We proclaim it to each other as together in community we drink and we eat of these elements. And it is a, a reminder that we are proclaiming of where our hope lies, what we are trusting in. And this is also a proclamation to unbeliever. Maybe unbelievers in our midst as we observe the Lord's Supper. As we remind ourselves and become reoriented to the cross, it is a proclamation to unbeliever as we leave our gathered assembly and as we go to our workplaces and our communities. You see, the Lord's Supper, like the gospel, is to be proclaimed. So as we close this morning, can I ask you, have you lost sight of the significance and the weightiness of Jesus' 
love for you. His sacrifice for you. Are you kind of like the old song says, searching for love in all the wrong places? Are your life goals and objectives so far from anything representative of the significance and purpose that the gospel brings in our lives that you are just way off course? And God in His mercy and in His grace gives us the table of the Lord to reorient our lives to where it should be. You see, we as a church are called to take seriously the two commands, the two ordinances that Jesus has given His church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They serve as reminders. They serve as means of grace. They serve as times of of spiritual fellowship, both vertically and horizontally. Let us live in light of Christ's death on our behalf. (laughs) 